Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is the podcast for anyone interested in growing sales. Today's episode of Let's Talk Sales is brought to you by our ebook, Leadership for Organizational Growth. Be sure to download a copy today. You can find it in the notes for today's show at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod375, kind of a milestone number. This is Elizabeth Frederick, and I have really enjoyed getting to know today's guest. He's the CEO and co-founder of WorkRamp, which is an end-to-end training platform for educating employees and customers at scale. He's built his career in the tech industry at companies that you would recognize, and he's been in roles varying from account executive to product manager, so really seeing kind of both sides of those businesses. He is based in the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to the show, Ted Blasser. Thanks for having me. Did you say this is episode 375? It is. Wow, congrats. That's a big milestone. Thank you. I'm (laughs) honored. Well, we picked you just for it. So um, I'm so glad that you could join me and that we could find this time. I just shared, you know, high-level bullets about you, but I'd love it if you could introduce yourself to our listeners. Yeah, for sure. Um, Again, uh, I'm the co-founder and CEO of WorkRamp. Uh, WorkRamp is uh, building what we call the Learning Cloud, which is an end-to-end learning platform for both employee and customer education. We serve uh, essentially the uh, uh, SMB and mid-market segments uh, for learning. So we're really excited to be doing what we're doing. A little background uh, on myself. Um, as you mentioned, Elizabeth, I actually came up through the sales ranks early in my career, started at Cisco, and we can do a deep dive into this later on, then moved into uh, the SaaS world at Box. And then uh, from there, changed into product management, loved uh, building products. And that's where we uh, ended up spinning out a Box, me and Another colleague of mine at Box spun out and started WorkRamp back in late 2015. So it's it's uh, almost eight years uh, this year uh, on the journey and excited to share a little bit more about how that journey has been going and walk uh, through some of those details. Absolutely. I, I love that summary. And um, just going to start with a quick observation that you don't necessarily see very many people who move from sales to product. And I feel like I've seen more people actually who might've moved from product to sales. Totally. <laughs> and so I'd I'd love to hear a little bit about just that move and, and what inspired it and how you experienced that change because that must've been pretty eye-opening. Yeah, especially in the tech industry, you see a lot of people who have, you're right, gone from engineering to uh, leadership or sales uh, later on. And uh, for example, I think uh, Todd McKinnon from Okta did that. Larry Ellison actually was an engineer uh, by trade. I don't think a lot of people knew that um, mm-hmm. as well. And so usually you see the reverse. But yeah, mine was mine was kind of the opposite. I think I attribute it to my, uh, actually my engineering degree from college. I actually studied electrical engineering. And when I came out of college, the funny story was I was thinking I was going to go get an engineering job at Cisco. And at Cisco, uh, they had two lines of the career fair. And I said, hey, which one should I get into? And they said, uh, well, you can choose. And I said, well, which one, which one pays more? And they said, <laughs> hey, this line on the right pays more. <laughs> and that line ended up being the account executive line. And the other line was uh, the uh, essentially systems engineering line, which I just totally accidentally skipped. And so I kind of stumbled into <laughs> going from my engineering degree, then into sales. And I love sales and having that 
engineering background gave me a little bit of a leg up in the field. Uh, a lot of the AEs weren't technical uh, when they would take their, uh, there's a certification for Cisco called CCNA for anybody out there who knows the networking world. So taking things like that made it really easy for me to to really me- understand the problems of, of CIOs at the time. And, uh, and I just kind of kept this technical uh, know-how in the background while I was kind of learning this new craft around sales. Um, and so I always knew I wanted to come back into product, knew I wanted to come back into building things. And when you're starting a startup, those are kind of the two big things you have to know how to do. One is know how to sell to customers. And the other one is know how to take those needs of those customers and build great products. And so I was, I was fortunate to still have that kind of desire and skill set around the technical capabilities, but then also build up the sales skill set during those years as well uh, through my time selling uh, both hardware and also software. Definitely. Definitely. I think you you described that so well. And we often see if people have that that product mindset, that engineering approach, sometimes sales can be quite a quite a challenging thing. It's a very different um, style of communication. A lot of times it's a very um, different skill set that that can make you successful in some ways. And so to to have kind of worn both hats is unique. And also um, I can see how that's contributed to where you are today. Totally, totally. All right. Well, I find it just fascinating that you're all about learning and education, right? So, so WorkRamp is the the platform, as you said, for both employee and customer um, education. And we are a podcast that's all about helping people learn and grow and develop. And I would imagine over the course of these last almost eight years that you've probably had a lot of observations about starting a company, about ramping up growth, about you know, building an offering and then bringing it to market and hoping people buy it and um, making sure that 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 all works out. So I'd love to maybe focus our conversation today on some of those key learnings that you've had over the course of the last eight years. Sound good? That sounds great. And and I would say we were just talking on the pre-call a little bit. Even in the last uh, two weeks, I've had so many learnings, uh, especially <laughs> with this banking crisis. But uh Happy to uh, actually jump into a lot of these areas over the last eight years. I think uh, the audience can learn a, a ton from them. Absolutely. I, uh, you know, not saying that everything you've done is make mistakes, but I do love to learn from other people's mistakes, so I don't have to make them myself. So let's see if we can we can hone in on maybe some some learnings that you're like, man, I wish I knew this right before I burn my hand on the stove. So uh, the first thing that it, it kind of builds on our, our the conversation that we were just having because. Quite often, especially when I'm talking to people who have more the the engineering, the the science-y, product-y background, there's a passion and an excitement for the product because you built it. (laughs) And there's a certain element of just kind of being in love with your own creation. And I'm not going to judge because we've, we've all been there. But it's different because your love for it might not necessarily resonate with what it is that the market is looking for. The message that makes sense to you isn't necessarily a message that resonates with your buyers. How did you approach that initial um, launch and the initial development of your product so that you could make sure you weren't just building something that you were in love with that nobody wanted to buy? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And we, we went through quite a journey. I'll, I'll actually step through it a little bit. And this is, I would call it the first phase of the company, this, this uh, zero to one phase, just figuring out who the heck would even want to buy this thing. So <laughs> step back in time. This was um, late 2015 when we had started WorkRamp. And um, when we started, we didn't have great growth. Uh, luckily, we got into Y Combinator in 2016. Mm-hmm. We kind of had fake growth, I would call it at that time. When you go through Y Combinator, you're really talking about like, um, I wouldn't call it juicing your numbers, but you're doing whatever you can to kind of claw your way to any bit of revenue so you can raise a fundraising round. The, the good thing is we were able to do that. We, we clawed our way to, I think, maybe by the time we graduated 100 or 150K ARR, we were kind of ordained by IC as uh, by YC as a top ten startup, as noted by TechCrunch. So we were doing kind of all the right things, but we didn't have true product market fit. And this mm-hmm. happens to a lot of companies that go through uh, Y Combinator. Is hey, you go through, you kind of are doing all the right motions, but when you really peel back the onion, you don't really have good product market fit. And we went through this really hard period after raising a seed round, and we raised. Uh, 2.2 million from the likes of Joe Montana, Alexis Ohanian. Mm-hmm. We thought we were on track with everything. But that next two years was really freaking hard. 2016 through 2018, I call this the wandering the desert years, mm-hmm. where we didn't know what we wanted to be. We were kind of in love with parts of our product. We weren't really listening to customers. We we're kind of throwing spaghetti against a wall. We were having a lot of internal fights. We lost team members, as an example. Um, and it was just a struggle. We were going to like a, a dingy kind of apartment to work out of. is like this uh, co-working spot um, <laughs> that we were in. So just like everything was bad all around. I still almost shudder to those uh, thinking of those days. And it was tough. It was like a, it's like a survivor. It's like, hey, go, go get put on an island. See if you could get out of there um, in two years and still be able to raise that Series A. And the reason I bring that up and, and it kind of accentuate how hard it was, was the reason it was hard is because we didn't have the product market fit. And it wasn't, I wouldn't even call it just product market fit. Our bigger issue was actually more of a go-to-market fit. Mm. And I almost call this a subset of product market fit. Mm-hmm. So product market fit is kind of the overarching term of, hey, do you actually have customers who want to buy your product and they like it? And so we didn't have that in those years. And what we realized was we had this go-to-market fit issue. The underlying product platform was actually just fine. Like we were actually building the right thing because we went into a category called the LMS category. Mm-hmm. And the learning management system category was, was kind of well-known. So you kind of knew what to build. But what was happening is one day we would be selling to a trucking company in Chicago Another day, we would be selling to a nursing home in uh, Vermont. And then another day, we would be selling to like a biking company in Ecuador. And <laughs> all, all along that, we were selling to Square, the company Square, in San Francisco to their high-tech sales team. And so what happened was we, we basically found discipline, found the ideal customer profile, so that go-to-market fit, and we honed in on that. And that was in 2018 when we said, hey, let's go focus on companies below 250, 300 people. Let's go focus on the sales enablement use case. And let's just focus in on uh, San Francisco clients. Like, let's not sell to anybody outside of the Bay Area. And so once we did that, and we all agreed on that, that aligned everything. That aligned our internal employees. That aligned our 
um, our product strategy that aligned our marketing materials to customers. And then it started to click. We didn't change that much on the product itself. I mean, we obviously changed the roadmap and direction a little bit, but it was mostly there already. This was mostly a go-to-market fit uh, solution that we found. And then once we did that in 2018, we finally got out of the desert. And that was when we got on our path to a millionaire R and uh, raising our Series A. That's that's such a great story. One element that I really want to hone in on, and I think that this might often get missed when when people are thinking about go-to-market, whether it's product market or go-to-market, is the internal alignment on what it is that you're building and selling. Because we don't always think about, is everybody at my firm on the same page with what it is that, that we do? And if not, that's a big problem. And I'm not saying everybody has to, you know, say the exact same words when they're describing your solution. But when you're in that that startup, that early stage mode, you need a team where everybody's rowing in the same direction. Everybody's so excited about what it is that you're doing. And if I kind of think that we're building something for major enterprise clients, and you kind of think that we're doing something else, and everybody's on a little bit of a different page, we're not able to really effectively work together. And we're, we're having these completely unnecessary fights with each other when we should be, you know, it's cliche, but we should be working as a team. We should be, um, right. we should be identifying, you know, solutions. And, and if we're not on the same page, then I'm trying to solve for a problem that's not relevant to the problem that you're trying to solve for. And so we're probably coming up with a lot of great ideas that don't even go together. Yeah. And if you, if you think about, this is a great Great topic where Jason Lemkin just posted about this the other day, where he said, Hey, if you're spending most of your time fighting internally, mm-hmm. you are in trouble because you're not one, you're not spending that with customers where you should be. And in YC all this always had this mantra is that most companies don't die from competition. They usually die from suicide, right? They die from infighting and issues happening internally or co-founder conflicts. And so what was happening during that time is I remember the countless walks I would have to do around the block. Literally, my feet were sore from how many walks we would have to do on one-on-ones to really just get people on the same page or to handle any issues people had with our vision. It was really challenging. Like we were spending during those, that was one in the desert years. If I had to just throw a number out, I'm doing this off the top of my head. It's like we were probably spending 60, 70% of our time internally when we should have been spending 80, 90% of that time externally is because we didn't have um, basically our internal operations in order and everyone believing. And ultimately that kind of led to a cycling out of the team, which is a whole nother story, but you kind of had to cycle out the team and make sure you had the right people on the bus who kind of believe in the vision. And that was one big part of how we essentially got to that next phase. Absolutely. And and that leads into, we might end up coming back to, to product market fit, um, because I, I do think that's something that, that leaders struggle with. But when you're having all this internal conflict, and it can be conflict in a very unhealthy way, and some leaders are able to have conflict in, in a reasonably healthy way, where, you know, it's it's productive debate, but still a lot of debate, a lot of just talking to each other is not great. Then you are going to see people who they're not passionate about the direction that you really want to go. And the longer it takes to figure out and align that that's the direction you want to go, the longer time they're at your organization when they're not the fit for you and you're not the fit for them. 
Yep. And so that it's it's a waste of time for them in their career, right? Uh, there's no way for me to say this. It doesn't sound fake. But I, I do think that when somebody leaves a team, if you have to let somebody go or if they leave on their own, it's a significant opportunity for that person. And sometimes as a leader, you have to let somebody go and you know they don't enjoy it. You don't enjoy it. But if they're not successful at your organization, you're setting them up potentially to be successful somewhere else. And everybody likes to be uh, a happy employee who's doing well, as opposed to somebody who comes to work every day and they're just like, I'm fighting, I'm pushing internally. Yeah, you're totally right. And that's changed my perspective even to this day is we don't oversell one prospective candidates and two people that are here. We basically say, hey, uh, we are going to try and create the best work environment for you. We want you to do your best work, but you ultimately have to choose personally to opt in and want to do this. If it's not a good fit, let us know. We'll try to make it a soft landing or find help you find your next role. But it has to be something you opt in for. Like we'll we'll hold up our end of the bargain of creating a great work environment with meaningful work. But you're totally right. At the end of the day, team members, especially on the sales side, right, is they have to want to opt in as well. It shouldn't be something that's forced upon them. Yeah. But then the other side of that is if it takes a long time and if you're constantly cycling through teams, it's really hard to build effective processes and systems and consistency and, and train people up and make sure you've got you know, the right best practices in place. So one thing that I've heard from a number of founders and um, people who've led early stage companies is they've cycled through, especially in sales, whole teams where you as the founder and, and other key leaders in the organization are able to communicate with buyers and are able to sell and get investments and, and have a lot of productive conversations. And then you're like, we hired this whole group of people they're supposed to be experts. This is what they do. And they're just spending all this time, you know, going out there talking to people and they're not closing anything. So clearly I hired all terrible people and I have to fire all of them and hire a whole new batch. And somehow that next batch doesn't work out either. So what what are some of the lessons you learned, especially as you were as you were growing a sales team? Because I think this does go back to what we were talking about earlier with go-to-market fit, right? Which is what is the actual value proposition that we're communicating through the sales team? What are the what are the specific ideal targets that they're going after? There's a lot that's structure in addition to the actual people that you have. So a big messy question, but I'd love to hear about um, some of that experience and and some of the core observations that you had as you were going through it. Yeah, for sure. And and now we're a little over 100 people. About half of that org is in our revenue-facing org across sales, CS, uh, marketing. And so we've learned a lot through the years now. And I wouldn't say we really figured out what we were doing on the sales hiring side until, no joke, four years into the, the almost eight-year journey. So about 20, 2019 is when we start to click. I could talk about what happened before 2019 and we went through a lot of, we probably made every mistake in the book from a hiring perspective. Um, if, if you think about, I'll, I'll actually go more towards the beginning and what the core issue was. We had a couple sales reps that came in sequentially. These were even good friends, people I trusted. I've seen them sell. I knew they could sell. And they just weren't successful here. And it was to no fault of their own because they were probably better sellers than I was. 
And um, what was challenging in those early days is I essentially hired them too early. We did mm. not have that product market fit, like I mentioned. And I thought we could, or like go to market fit. And I thought we could brute force it. And my and the common mistake I see with a lot of CEO and founders, CEO and co-founders who sell on their own is they say, hey, I'm so busy. If I could just get a sales rep to help me sell, then, then I could go do other more strategic things for the business. And the one thing I realize is the most strategic thing for the business is to sell and find product market fit. Uh, nothing else really in those early times, if you're not on the product side, as an example. And so essentially, the mistake I made super early on was trying to outsource sales before I could really do it myself. Um, and I couldn't really do it myself until we had that go-to-market fit. So I, I literally, I'm still uh, good friends with some of those early hires today. And I even, I deeply apologize to them every time I see them. I say, hey, sorry for wasting a year of your life. Hopefully you enjoyed <laughs> it in some capacity. Uh, but I, I literally thought um, uh, wasn't great for their careers. It's probably a fun part of their journey and understanding the startup experience. But it wasn't fair to them to try to expect them to sell in those early days. Then. What happened was when we got to that product market fit slash go to market fit in that 2019 era, we had a really good rep. She's still with us now. She's now a senior director of sales. Uh, her name is Danielle. And um, she sold better than I could. We were right around a million ARR and she just came in and started crushing it. And, and that was when I knew we had a go to market fit. And because she was just literally so busy, she couldn't even get back to customers with quotes <laughs> or even like email closes, right? So you know you're you're busy and doing well when you're just closing via email, right? <laughs> and so she was doing such a great job. And and I then got a false signal at that time as well, which was interesting. Mm. This is what a lot of, I think, uh, people don't talk about is you think you've made it when you had that super rep really yep. come in and crush. Uh, but what happened was that our next couple reps weren't successful. And, and I was scratching my head. I was like, wait, what the heck? How can one rep just do so well and the next couple reps not do that well? And then it became more of a, I call it a rep market fit, where we mm. need to figure out our ideal rep profile. Yeah. And Danielle, she was just a unicorn. She went to Stanford. She's one of the smartest people I've ever met. And she just could kind of figure anything out. And um, so like, she didn't really have an ideal profile. She was just a great, uh, <laughs> great rep, really smart, can pretty much figure anything out. So she was more of the unicorn. But what I realized the next couple reps just weren't the right fit from a skill set perspective that matched to our industry and matched to our sales process. And so then I had to cycle through a couple more reps. And then by the third and fourth rep after this unicorn, Danielle, is when we when we truly figured out the rep market fit and the ideal rep profile that could sell in our industry really well in our segment. And then once we figured that out, we finally, I would say, <laughs> figured out how to hire and then everything was up and to the right from there. It's a long <laughs> journey. I mean, I probably mentioned four or five cycles of people that we messed up with, super painful conversations. I'm really grateful for all that they did. But um, yeah, we just we just didn't have our our act figured out. Absolutely. And I I heard about two stages that I have seen so often that people don't recognize. One is the difference between a superstar rep, a great rep, and a founder. And sometimes what you'll have is 
you have a perception of what's possible based on what you've achieved. And it takes a Danielle (laughs) to blow that out of the water for you to realize, oh my goodness, like our goals need to be higher. We need to, we need to set different expectations. And that can be really fun, but it is also challenging when then you try to figure out the second problem is, okay, is this a Danielle thing? Or is this a, everybody we hire should be able to do this. And it's really challenging for leaders when you don't have a big history as an organization where you can say, typically in their first month, somebody will achieve these results. And then in their second month, they will do this. By the end of the first year, we expect that they've had this. You don't have that history. You don't have that data. And so you're just trying to think, okay, what is Danielle's magic uh, is it that she went to Stanford? Okay, let's just hire people from people from Stanford, and you start you start really trying to diagnose and determine and and that observation of she's the direction that you want to go, but you're not going to be able to clone her. And so, what are the key elements that have made her successful that you can fit into an ideal hire profile where you're not just looking for one in a million, but there are actual you know, enough candidates for you to to follow up on. So I, I love the way you articulated that journey because um, you went through kind of, I think, the two major challenges that we hear from people in that stage with the same person, which is also somewhat unusual. Yeah. And you know what's really interesting is it was right in front of us that whole time, even though she was the unicorn hire. I didn't really study what she was doing. I just thought, oh, she's a great rep, right? And I actually mm-hmm. hired, for example, someone from her from her previous company thinking, hey, maybe yep. this is like a product match for her. But what I really realized in our industry, and this is different for different companies, but in our industry, what we had figured out is that people who were process-driven were mm-hmm. very successful. And it wasn't people who were product experts because, for example, like Danielle probably wasn't the product expert uh, in demoing things. She could do like basic demos, answer basic questions, but that wasn't where she leaned. Where she leaned was she just ran a flawless sales process and was very opinionated on how she ran that process. (laughs) And we essentially built the playbook off of that. So doing things, and, and I'll go into some more sales specifics, like, hey, never sending pricing over until she got super busy, like I said earlier. But in most normal deals, she would never, for example, send over pricing via email and just mm-hmm. uh, wave to the customer, say, hey, let me know if you want to buy. She mm-hmm. had a very opinionated process to say, hey, I want to actually review this proposal with you live before sending it, right? And again, these were for her bigger deals that she was working. The smaller transactional ones, she would break that process. But for the bigger deals, she had a very opinionated process of how she would run it. She would get on a call with a client, explain the ins and outs of those of those uh, quotes. And to your point, uh, as you introduced this question, we did a great job in opening my eyes into what's possible. So for example, um, during those early early years, I would say, you know what, this this account, it's a $10,000 per year account. Mm-hmm. She would say, you know what, we're delivering way more value than that. We should start with $25,000. And, mm-hmm. and the customer's like, yeah, you are delivering that much value for us. Actually, you're saving us $50,000 from our incumbent solution. And so she could open up your eyes because she had a great process where she did discovery. She was comfortable and confident with the value prop. And then that's how we start to increase revenue from there. Absolutely. And I, I just love that insight because a lot of times 
as as leaders, if you are doing the right thing, and like you, you mentioned earlier, it can be easy to think, I've got so many other things to focus on. I'm a founder. I'm a key leader. Um, I'm just going to hire salespeople and they're just going to do it. It's actually beneficial for you to be having those conversations with prospects and customers, and it's going to inform the direction that the company takes and, and the direction that your product, your service takes. But at some point when you do step away and you have that ability to have somebody with a different perspective, maybe whose comp is very, very, very dependent on closing business and they want to they wanna get the absolute best and most out of it that they can. And, and the ideas that they come up with can just be so much beyond what you might have experienced and what you might think is possible. And it's so exciting and affirming when somebody sees that more is possible in the company that you built. Because what they're telling you is, I I not only see the value that you see in our offering, I see more. And I think some leaders might take that at first as an indictment of themselves and uh, uh, you know somebody saying that they're wrong but the fact that you've emphasized quite a few times you know she had she had a process has a process <laughs> that worked and you could see the results and it was being affirmed by clients that's a that's a really natural and positive way to to plan and execute on you know changes to go to market changes even in the offering if necessary where you're taking the benefit of you as the founder, having had these initial conversations, and then now you have somebody who doesn't have that kind of relationship, that kind of conversation with your buyer, and she's still able to articulate the solution in a way that that buyers really connect to. And that's a that's an exciting stage as a leader to figure out, you know what, this isn't something that only I can speak to, that only I can have the ideas, but other people are able to do that because, you know, you built the foundation and they're, they're building on top of it. So again, messy, not really a question, but that must've been um, really exciting to experience as a leader. For sure. And as then when you find the ideal rep profile and you hire more people into your point, they all come in with a new idea or new set of concepts they infuse in the org. Mm-hmm. So it, so she was kind of the initial seed of the org. But over time now, as we've hired more leaders and more reps, we basically take the best of what they've seen and continue adding on that stack. So uh, to start, you're totally right. The foundation was being very process-driven. But over time, we've taken the best from new reps and new leaders and infused that into the process. And that's what supercharged our growth. Yeah, and I would imagine that your experience as, you know, in sales likely informed you there because something we also often see in organizations, especially as they're scaling, is information doesn't always flow well internally. And so you have salespeople out in the world talking to prospects and customers and getting all of these great ideas. And they can be ideas about the selling process and best practices, or they can be ideas about the solution and the product and and specific details that customers are looking for. And if you just wall them off and say, you know, go sell, I don't want to hear from you. You know, all I want to see is the pipeline. You can be missing out on a lot of really insightful observations that the team has that they're bringing back from your customers. This is market research. 
<laughs> that people are doing in every conversation they have. And so I would imagine your your experience in selling probably helped you discover that. So you you were open to and maybe created channels for that information to come back from Danielle and the the next hires that you got after her. And you're told right now, I have strong opinions on this. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about three parts of a framework. Now, if you think about right now, we're, we're fully remote company now, 100 plus people. And we, we didn't used to be fully remote before COVID. And so we, we spent the first uh, f- uh, four and a half years of our company life as an in-person San Francisco company. And one, to your point, one big thing we learn is, hey, how do we sell and learn from each other? Because we're a learning company in this remote environment. And it comes in three big parts. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is really good communication with each other. Async communication, live communication. We do this heavily on Slack. So we film uh, uh, short videos, for example, on Slack. We create account channels per account. So we actually share a lot of information async and synchronously. Then two, we have a really good knowledge base. We use at last mm. where we recommend to every single rep, hey, if you learn something, like just the other day, we got a competitor quote uh, that was shared to us from uh, a customer. Nice. And, right, and, and we redacted, obviously, names and, and, and specific information, but we post that, that quote into our knowledge base so that when we come across that competitor the next time, we understand how they price. And then lastly, um, then it's about the learning, right? Like uh, as a learning company, what we do is we have these points in time where uh, once a month we do a lunch and learn for mm. the whole go-to-market team where we're training everybody. And then uh, also we have another monthly meeting where we do sales sound bites, where we're pushing out specific topics to people. So very structured learning experiences on top of the, let's call it the more transactional communications via uh, Slack and also the knowledge base. And so that's a three-part framework that's really critical in a remote selling environment. Otherwise, everyone's going to be selling differently and you're going to be banging your head against the wall when you see, hey, why why are some reps succeeding and others aren't? Absolutely. I love that that framework. And it makes sense to me that as the CEO of a learning organization, a training organization, you've been you've been really thinking about this because I see so many breakdowns in each of those three areas, right? The the first one, and this can be catastrophic for organizations, but is just overall communication. When you see these teams and there aren't clear channels for communication, there aren't you know, literally just, do you have, do you have the right Slack channels? Do, do people know who the people in other departments are that they might share insights with? Do, have you created a culture in your team of, I want to keep all my best practices to myself so I can be seen as a superstar versus I want the whole team to succeed because we all, we all succeed together. And so that, that communication is so important. But then a lot of times we see that the communication is a one-time thing. And maybe I can go back and try to scroll or search through, through you know, communications and find the best practice that somebody shared last month. But the idea of pulling together a knowledge base, you know, whether it's like a sales playbook or whether it's even just here's the here's the best language we have for RFPs, here's all the information we have on our competitors. It's so powerful to have a ideally well-organized and accessible place where that lives. Because again, so many, so many leaders I talk to, you know, they're like, oh, we have a drive and it's a disaster and they're not adding new stuff to it because what's there is already such a mess and, and you're really missing out. And then that poor new person who starts, you know, a week after a great conversation was had 
has no insight into it because it was never stored anywhere. Um, and then that final piece of really creating situations and establishing times for learning and for sharing of best practices. We have been banging on this drum for years, and I, I love to hear it from a CEO. When you have sales team meetings, it shouldn't just be them reporting out, but you should be training them. It's such a great opportunity to share best practices, to to brainstorm with each other, to say, you know, one person raises their hand, hey, I'm struggling with this. Anybody have a best practice? And their peers are actually sharing and training and, and growing. So uh, that's a that's in some ways may sound like a simple framework to people. But I've seen in so many organizations where it breaks down in one or all of those three areas. So um, it's a it's a great model that you're that you're thinking of. Yeah, and to your last point is we we don't do it just on the sales team. Like we have mm-hmm. we have the the cadences I mentioned, but we also set a framework at the company level mm-hmm. too that's focused all around learning and knowledge. So for example, our cultural rhythm is we essentially have three company-wide meetings a week. The first one on Monday is mandatory. The Wednesday one is optional. And then it's essentially called lunchroom. It's like a lunch and learn. And then Friday is highly, highly recommended. So we usually get about 70, 80% of the team members there. And what we do is we leverage each of those meetings to be a essentially a learning moment for companies. And so on Fridays, what we do is we rotate between each department. Mm. And they, they can do any agenda item they want. They could do a training. They could give an update. They could hype uh, a certain event coming up, for example. And so just a great way to have an overarching framework for the company that's consistent. It's part of your cultural values. It's great getting everyone together uh, three, roughly three times a week just for quick. And th- these are short meetings. These are 30-minute meetings mm-hmm. uh, three times a week. But it's just a great way to build that camaraderie while also um, helping distribute information, especially if you're a fully remote company. It's been really helpful. Absolutely. You're really creating space for the, you know, water cooler <laughs> level conversations that you bump into somebody in the hallway and you share what happened and, and, and there's real magic in that. And yep. I, I enjoy a lot of the aspects of being fully remote, which I, we switched as well at the, you know, during COVID, but you definitely miss out unless you're creating space for these situations. And um, the idea of frequent 30 minute with, you know, one mandatory, one highly recommended, one optional you're giving people a lot of flexibility there as opposed to once a quarter, we will pull everybody together for an all day meeting and you try to cram everything into one big meeting. You're more creating an ongoing conversation. And that's that seems like you're going to see definitely better results when it comes to maintaining the culture that you're looking for and also not missing out on core information transfer. Totally, totally. All right. Um, I'm looking at the clock and realizing that we have talked longer than I thought we might about, about this. So I'm going to start to wind things down with some questions that I always like to ask our guests. First one is, especially anytime I'm talking to a leader, a founder, um, entrepreneur, what are some trends that you're keeping an eye on right now? You know, there's 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 a couple trends. Um, one, which probably every founder should be keeping an eye on, is the AI trend. We mm-hmm. just... Uh, <laughs> We just uh, released our first uh, foray into the space. It's called uh, the Learning Cloud Assist uh, feature. And so we have the Learning Cloud and the Learning Cloud Assist is essentially how you can infuse AI into your content creation. But AI, I was just talking to my co-founder yesterday. 
where there's a lot of noise in the market right now. Yep. But it doesn't mean you need to release something. It just means you have to be on it <laughs> and be ready to pull the trigger or at least start architecting things to know, hey, how do I actually go put this into my product mm -hmm. if it does become table stakes? And so I think every founder right now is thinking, all right, is AI table stakes or is it kind of an enhancement or a nice feature? No one really knows. Yeah. And so the best thing we can do right now is, is observe it, watch it, understand it. And if we need to pull the trigger, we can pull the trigger in a heavier capacity. So that's that's one big one. Absolutely. Another big one is um, I've been watching the multi-product movement very closely. And so I have this uh, concept that, hey, in the 2000s, this is in SaaS, SaaS was really coming about 2010s that decade. Uh, was all about, hey, best of breed SaaS applications. And I think this decade, the 2020s, is all about um, bundling, multi-product, mm -hmm. every single SaaS application is going through that right now. And it's really about, can you choose the right things that you should actually bundle for your customers that they would actually want to buy and find value from? So watching that trend really closely. And then kind of lastly, on the sales front, um, the trend I really like uh, watching right now is the return to... Um, what I call a full stack selling Manny Medina mm -hmm. from Outreach, who we just hosted on our conference uh, last week, was talking a lot about um, the full stack seller again. And uh, where there's actually, I think, a, almost like the bundling <laughs> approach <laughs> I was mentioning earlier is where I think 2010s was the era of uh, kind of unbundling sales getting very specialized. And uh, what we realized is the, that, that forced cost to really balloon and so I think we're seeing a return to full stack selling, which was more the selling in the 90s and 2000s. I think you're seeing a return of that to being a little more in vogue in this new market, um, especially now that we can do a lot of our selling remote too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, couldn't agree more with all of the things that you're keeping an eye on. And as you said, those last two are, are really related and figuring out how can we be the best value to our ideal customer without trying to be everything for everyone? And how can we also add solutions and, and features in such a way that we're not overstressing our team and saying, okay, you used to sell five things and now you need to sell a hundred, <laughs> but you're scaling into your expansions in a way that you're actually able to keep people, you know, people are able to keep up with you. All right, Ted, what are some resources that you would recommend to our listeners? It can be, um, you know, books, podcasts, blogs, websites that you find a lot of um, value in or um, any other resources that you might recommend. Yeah, for sure. I think um, recently I've been really into podcasting. Uh, well, one, we just started our own podcast, so that's been fun. But but two, I've been, I've been really listening to a ton of podcasts. One big podcast I would recommend is a podcast cal called uh, Founders. Mm. And so um, this is part of the Colossus Network now. It's this by this guy, David Senra. What he does is he reads uh, literally a biography a week or every couple days, and then he summarizes it for you in an hour episode. Uh, but he's very animated. And you'll learn from people like Ben Franklin, Napoleon, Steve Jobs. He'll do some uh, more contemporaries like Elon Musk. Um, and he has, uh, I think, almost 300 episodes now. And so I, I, I probably listen to two or three founder biographies every week and uh, turn a lot of those learnings into what we do here at WorkRamp. I'll give one specific example is 
he talked about Steve Jobs's kind of product release process, and we literally stole it and just <laughs> brought it into WorkRamp, and it's helped out a ton. So I would definitely recommend, obviously, podcasting in general, but uh, the Founders Podcast for people who want to learn from, uh, again, people before them who have done great things. So that's probably my biggest recommendation for today. Definitely. All right. And so we'll manifest getting you to be on the Founders podcast or a founder yes. that he speaks about. <laughs> you know, he does a, a lot, lot of learnings. people who, who are not alive anymore. So maybe, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe a hundred years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right. Um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have really enjoyed hearing from you and they might be interested in learning more about you and your work. Where can they find you? Yeah, for sure. You can learn about WorkRamp and, and what we're doing with what we call the Learning Cloud uh, on our website. So WorkRamp.com, or you can find us on LinkedIn there pretty easily as well. Um, just a quick search for WorkRamp. And uh, yeah, just reach out if you have any questions uh, to our team. Absolutely. Thank you so, so much for joining me today, Ted. I have really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for having me on, Elizabeth. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into today's show. You can find the notes and resources for everything we've been talking about today at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 375. If you enjoyed the show, please recommend us to a friend. That is the best way for more people to discover it. And if you haven't subscribed, make sure you do that on whatever platform you prefer to listen. We love feedback. You can leave us ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. Or if you've got feedback for us, questions, suggested guests, you can reach us at podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at CFS Playbook and the blog at criteriaforsuccess.com slash insights. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success. What are you doing to enable buying today?